This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I hope you're well this Monday afternoon. I'm Cassie Half with you for the Country Hour. Now, mice have been seen in some parts of the state and interstate as well, and as a result, the mouse bait double-strength zinc phosphide is still available under emergency permit, but you do need to do some training, but there could be some further developments as well. We could demonstrate that there is a need uh, for the emergency permit to exist to the regulator. And, of course, full registration is now possible with the information that we've been able to gather through from the CSIRO's work and the National Working Party for Mouse Management uh, as well. So uh, we'll keep across what that could mean. But in the meantime, I've got some information about that training if you are keen to get your hands on that that, uh, double-strength zinc phosphide. Also, the Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against a group of New Zealand producers. I'll tell you what that win is in the next half hour or so. But first up today, some beekeepers from large parts of New South Wales are going to be able to move their bees across state borders. All the states and territories have agreed to declare the blue zone in New South Wales, Varroa Mite Free. Now, I don't have specific details from South Australia yet, but Chris, uh, sorry, Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apris Association told David Corton that South Australia, as well as Victoria and Queensland, will reopen their borders in the next few weeks. There's nothing being found in the blue zone. So we, we say that's a clean area. So when nothing's been detected in an area, we keep it as a blue zone or a green zone, whatever, clean. And it's um, there's no traces, there's nothing at all. So it's a clean zone that we can work in. Right. So if, if beekeepers, and this includes beekeepers from other states who've been locked into New South Wales effectively, if they've got bees in the blue zone, they can now move across state borders or is there still some steps to be, to be, to be completed here? Yes. So you uh, need to still do surveillance. They still need to... Um, apply for permits and traceability is a must in case something is detected later on. So they've got to abide by whatever's put in place. So if the government says, or DPI says that we can do this under a permit, then do everything. Do your washes, um, make sure you report anything unusual, and this way we can maintain our clean bill of health. Right. And how many beekeepers do you think would be affected by this change? How many have been stuck in New South Wales unable to move their bees out? Um, I'm not real sure on the actual figures, but I know there's been numerous ones because when you live close to a border, you, the border's only a sort of a drawing on a map. And um, with a beekeeper, you can go across a river and, and so on. So there's been a fair few people that have been stuck. So does that mean people who are breeding queen bees particularly can now move queen bees out of New South Wales because we are a big producer in New South Wales of queen bees for other states, right? Yes, there is still conditions on the movement of queen bees. Um, My understanding at the moment is that the New South Wales border per se isn't just completely relaxed. At the moment, it's only the Victorians that can actually move, but we're trying to get it and it's going to take a few more weeks. So it's not easy to um, just say, oh, the border's open. We've still got a little few more steps yet before everything's open and running smooth. What will it take for 
uh, free movement to be possible for people even in the purple and the red zones? Um, we, we've got to actually show that we are absolutely clean. So that's three years. Three years of no detections, nothing. In the meantime, then, how much of the industry can enjoy free movement, do you think, in New South Wales? How many? Would it be 50% in those red and purple zones that are going to have to wait three years? Um, well, the people in the red and the purple zones, and I am actually involved in that here on the north coast. I've had um, about 106 hives euthanized here in the red zone, and I still have 500 um, odd hives tied up in the purple zone. And that is so that I can, the purple ones, um, so I can fulfil contracts to my growers that I have contracts with. Uh, some people euthanised all their bees in the purple zone and the ones that have lost them in the red zone, so they have the right that they could actually start up in the blue. So they'd have to move? They move, or you can, um, today with the vehicles we have, sometimes it's not that far. The biggest problem is when you have the actual extraction shed in, a, in one of those zones. That's when it becomes awkward. Mm. One element of this is a bit confusing because only this week we were hearing a lot of concern. In fact, we've been hearing it for some weeks now, but the New South Wales Authority said we're going to start auditing beekeepers because we're not getting enough test results to see whether there is varroa around the state, whether it's in Queensland or Victoria, but particularly in New South Wales. Why the sudden change of heart when those test results aren't in? Uh, because of all the publicity, people have jumped on board and started reporting the uh, information they had. Uh, a lot of people didn't realise they had to report. They knew they had to do the alcohol washes, but they didn't realise they had to report. And when that information or that data has been conveyed through, we can show that there's been a lot of surveillance and nothing's turning up. Would you say the industry is almost back to normal then with this announcement? No. No, we've got a long way to go yet. And this is don't let your guard down. This is where uh, if you're going to become commonplace, then you will find that if there, if we have missed it, it could bite us on the rear end real quick. And with the New South Wales authorities auditing beekeepers, and that if they haven't done the right thing, what sort of penalties do they face? My understanding is that you're up to um, individuals, $1.1 million plus, um, uh, I think it's 175000 per day for every day after. What, that you haven't uh, done a test? If you haven't done tests or you haven't complied to different orders. Um, there is also the possibility of being deregistered or losing your sites. There's a lot of things that the DPI can impose on a beekeeper that doesn't want to do as they're asked to do. Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apiarists Association and just going over some of the main points there, beekeepers can move hives from the New South Wales Blue Zone to other states, but New South Wales still has to work out some of the conditions for entry into uh, South Australia, Victoria and Queensland to allow interstate movement. I am trying to chase down some more details from Perza on that as well. In contrast, Tasmania recently extended its restrictions on imports of European honeybees, including queen bees and apiary products, including beekeeping equipment for another six months. So they won't be going to Tasmania anytime soon by the sounds of things. 
Moving to grain now, and grain growers who want to use double strength, the zinc phosphide mouse bait, now need to complete a short training course to access the product. ZP50 is something the grains industry has had access to since 2021 under an emergency permit, but as part of the conditions for its use to be extended until the end of the year, training and reporting is now needed. Andrew Wiedemann is the Southern Director of Grain Producers Australia, and he says the course can be found online and it's free. From the start, uh, with the, the videos that are there on the screen and so forth, it took me about 18 minutes to do the whole thing from the start to the finish. What will speed it up, though, Kelly, is if people have got their ACUP number uh, and the details around that uh, on hand before they start it, and, and that'll speed it up a lot more. But a major part of that is obviously the training component and understanding the label, the requirements around the label. That is something that... Uh, is quite pertinent, particularly the Zinc 50, in terms of its application and growers being aware of it. There's a short video of five minutes. It's in that 18 minutes that it took me uh, to do the course, Um, and that gives you information around what to look for uh, when you're preparing to bait. That's the important part also for the reporting back, is to understand whether growers are uh, facing a mouse plague situation or a low population so that we can get a better handle for when we're looking at registration. So the information that we're collecting here as part of essentially what I call a large research trial is information that will help and assist us and the manufacturers in the future to go to full registration of the product. ZP50 has been available through an industry permit since 2021. Why is the training necessary now? Yes, yeah, so Kelly, for these um, emergency permits, there actually needs to be demonstrated need. And so for the extension of the permits, we're expecting that there'll be a large mouse population build-up, in particular probably Wimmera Mallee, Southern Mallee in uh, South Australia uh, this year. And obviously we're coming off the back of a big plague situation in Western Australia and New South Wales it was the precursor. We to demonstrate that there is a need uh, for the emergency permit to exist to the regulator. And, of course, full registration is now possible with the information that we've been able to gather through from the CSIRO's work and the National Working Party for Mouse Management uh, as well, uh, being involved with growers anecdotally providing the support for the product. Would you be encouraging farmers and people applying mice baits to complete the training sooner rather than later? Yeah, look, so we're we're looking for uh, people to obviously undertake the training uh, so that we can get the feedback as well uh, around it. But essentially, just making sure that people are well and truly aware that they can actually uh, do the training, uh, you know, within time so that they can then make sure that the bait is available through their regional supplier. Are you confident that there will be adequate supplies in a few months' time when people are going to start looking for it? Look, at this stage, I would suggest that the manufacturers are well-placed Uh, Kelly to be able to provide uh, the bait and again it's that communication between what the growers are seeing, the agronomists are seeing out in the field and and generally speaking their communication then back to the manufacturers. So we've got a number of the manufacturers on our current permit and and as a consequence of that they're working with us around this training requirement because that is also on them as a supplier and manufacturer to also be cognizant of their roles and responsibilities around uh, the application and the purchasing of bait. And is it fair to say that there really isn't any other alternative mouse baits available if people choose not to do this training? CSIRO research work that was undertaken 
Um, it shows quite conclusively just how effective that Sink 50 is on mice and the mouse population. And in fact, uh, Kelly, my observation is that we'll probably be using less bait uh, going forward because we'll have a much stronger substrate to be able to be used and used in under, as under the label conditions. Uh, Steve Henry's done a lot of work from CSIRO in this area, as you're well aware and listeners are well aware. Uh, so I'd suggest that you know people make themselves uh, aware of uh, what can and can't be done around the usage of it uh, and uh, one of his training sessions as well. Uh, and also, just on the back of uh, the work that's been done to actually... Um, make Zinc 50 available originally in the research work really came about from growers themselves from uh, around the Birchip area um, talking to us at the National Mouse Management Group and then making sure that the research work was done and has now been proven to show that, you know, subsequent to how much feed's available in the paddocks, the Zinc 50 con construct is actually the best uh, available bait that they have now to use and, and was amazingly effective in the recent New South Wales southern Queensland mouse plague uh, that we've seen uh, in the last couple of years. Andrew Wiedemann, the Southern Director of Grain Producers Australia, speaking to Kelly Hollingworth there. It is coming up to 18 minutes past 12. You might know a great farmer who deserves an award for their work. Well, nominations have opened for the 2023 Farmer of the Year Awards. Here's some details. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, a company that's responsible for the shipping and offshore logistics of almost all of Australia's in-shell almond crop is feeling pretty optimistic about the year ahead. In recent years, uh, agricultural exporters have been hit with skyrocketing shipping costs, a shortage of containers and congestion at ports. But Brian Moosley from Taper Enterprises says based on current trends and freight costs, as well as the efficiency of the transport system, it could mean that it could be back to 2019 levels by the third quarter of this year. We have gone through some very dark times in terms of uh, not just only cost, which is the thing that most people probably remember the most, but lack of availability of space on vessels, lack of uh, containers, lack of any sort of consultation from the shipping lines themselves. Um, it's It's been a pretty much a horror time for people like us and indeed our customers uh, who to a large large degree have uh, suffered quite significant losses, particularly with the sudden increase and ongoing increase in freight rates uh, over the last three years, which have only just started to uh, come back down the uh, the scale as of, uh, I think the the trend started in about June, July last year and we never saw any relief in Australia until uh, third quarter of uh, 22, I'm hoping, and certainly by the trends that have uh, emerged overseas, we'll uh, see that uh, diminishing trend in uh, sea freight costs, not to the extent or to the quantum that has been experienced in uh, North America and Europe, but 
uh, it will still be a substantial uh, decrease, I think, by the time we get to second or the end of second quarter, beginning third quarter, uh, 2023. How much could they drop by and what kind of impact could that have for exporters? Well, certainly compared to um, even 12, 14, 15, 16 months ago, we'd be probably about half what they were paying then. So a significant reduction for sure. Are some countries going to be easier to ship to than others this year? Not necessarily. I mean, shipping is a little bit of a moving feast depending on uh, what what's moving when. Bear in mind, Australia this year will probably export the largest grain crop that it's ever exported and the commodity that we're dealing mainly being the almonds uh, is in competition to a degree with uh, the, the grain industry for the provision of uh, food quality containers to enable them to get the certification from the Department of Agriculture that's required to uh, clear the goods when they uh, arrive in the overseas destination. Are the boats arriving at their destinations on time and sticking to a schedule? Because I know that that was a bit chaotic in the past few years as well. Yeah, uh, again, that that has improved to to a degree. I mean, as I say, this is a a gradual form of improvement and you also must remember that Australia is at the bottom end of the world. We only account for somewhere between 2 and 2.5% of total world trade, so we're not really on the radar as far as interest, if you like, goes. So we tend to get sort of left very much to our own devices in this part of the world. There's talk that some bigger ships are going to hit the water. How big are we talking and what kind of impact is that likely to have? These vessels that the uh, five major shipping lines have uh, invested in uh, will carry in excess of 20,000 up to about 24,000 20-foot equivalent container units at a time. Most sort of container vessels out there floating around are are anywhere from about the sort of four and a half, five thousand up to about ten thousand, twelve thousand TU at the very most. So when you're carrying double the amount on on a vessel, obviously that's going to, you know, soak up a, an awful lot of capacity very quickly as these vessels start to hit the water through calendar 2023. And are you seeing many new shipping containers being manufactured? Yes, to be able to. Uh, operate effectively. Clearly, these much bigger vessels uh, have a requirement for a lot more containers. And again, with the natural growth in uh, world trade, that you know, again, in my opinion, will continue to march along uh, during calendar year 2023. I would be uh, expecting that the, the Chinese will get very close to the one and a half to two million new builds that they talk about for calendar year 2022. I'm yet to see those figures, but that's my understanding of what they're actually expecting to be able to achieve. Brian Mosley from Taper Enterprises speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. They're about to how the shipping and offshore logistics is looking for the almond crop. Still to come on the Country Hour, I'll tell you a bit about the massive effort two shearers on the York Peninsula have put in to raise money for cancer foundations. It's a pretty cool thing they've done. I'll have more on that soon, but we'll find out what's making weather with Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Simon Timke. Good afternoon. Hi there, Cassie. So it's uh, looking quite stable this week, fairly stable weather across the Yeah, look, a, a couple of little hiccups in there, I, I think, though. And for, for today, we're, uh, our weather over SA is, is dominated by a, a, 
a broad trough of low pressure over central and eastern parts, uh, and and that's providing a little bit of instability and a, a little bit of moisture. So we're just starting to see a little bit of cloud develop about the, the Flinders and Mount Lofty ranges now. We've had some higher cloud push across the far south during the morning, but the, the cloud developing over the Flinders and Mount Lofty ranges now, and I expect parts further east as well, we'll, we'll start to see a little bit of shower activity possible, maybe even a, a, a rumble of thunder. So the areas uh, where that's possible, mainly most of the agricultural area, the Flinders district and the far south of the pastoral district, sort of anywhere southeast of about Woomera would be the chance of seeing increasing cloud during the early part of the afternoon and then a shower, possibly rumble of thunder during the afternoon and the evening as well. The, the trough sort of driving that weather will, will gradually move eastwards then uh, and be confined to just the far northeast of the state during Tuesday. So uh, as, as that eastward movement uh, occurs, we'll see the weather move eastwards too. So I think by sort of through Tuesday morning, the areas sort of about and east of the Flinders and Mount Lofty ranges will still be the chance of a shower or thunderstorm gradually contracting eastwards during Tuesday morning so that by um, early afternoon the, the showers and possible thunderstorms will be confined to sort of near the eastern border area uh, and pretty much clear to the east uh, by, by early to mid-afternoon on Tuesday. Um, not expecting any, any sort of big totals out of that weather. Um, generally for that that sort of period through to, to mid-afternoon tomorrow, expecting the order of one to five millimetres with showers and thunderstorms over the agricultural area, Flinders District and far south of the pastoral districts, and maybe the odd isolated fall of five to 15 millimetres possible with a thunderstorm. So there is that chance that the thunderstorms could, could produce a, a, a slightly higher rainfall total here or there. Uh, and then we, then we do go into a bit of a a dry period for a couple of days so that that trough moves away to the east and we're dominated by a ridge of high pressure to the south so the winds will stay generally southwest to southeasterly through Wednesday Thursday and pretty much dry conditions right across the state those two days with temperatures persisting sort of around the average mark for this time of year. Uh, but another change will, will approach late in the week, move into the very far southwest of the state um, late Friday. And we'll start to see the winds turn around northerly. Conditions will get hot to very hot generally right across the state on Friday. Uh, and then in the far west of the state, see a little bit of isolated shower and thunderstorm activity develop um, during Friday as well. So uh, at this point, expecting another one to five millimetres possible with those showers in the far west, possibly some locally higher falls with thunderstorms out that way on Friday too. But for central and eastern parts of the state, looks to, to remain dry on Friday, but we'll see that change move across on Saturday and, and bring the showers um, and thunderstorms to most districts then. So still a little bit of uncertainty with the exact timing of that change. The, the guidance that we look at is still um, jumping around a little bit. So there is a little bit of uncertainty with the timing of that change late Friday and Saturday, but really just a couple of very hot to hot to very hot days during Friday and, and Saturday. Once that change moves across, we will see um, milder conditions on uh, on Sunday and and on Monday as well. So a couple of hot days or hot to very hot days towards the end of the week, but some uh, relief in sight as that next change moves across there, Cassie. Yes, it's a very much still a, a summer pattern, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I guess this time of year, we've obviously got to expect some uh, some very hot days. I guess the other thing to note is is with uh, this particular change coming across, there is a, a little bit of sort of freshness in the northerly. So we will see the, the fire dangers um, become a little bit higher uh, on Friday and Saturday. Uh, and, and the front as it moves across, does look like it'll be a little bit uh, vigorous, so some, some gusty winds about that change as well. So, yeah, a, a, a good summertime front moving across. Thanks for that, uh, Simon Timke. We'll get more from the Bureau tomorrow. Thanks, Cassie. Simon Timke from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the morning and afternoon. Overnight, the temperatures, though, are getting down to between 18 to 23 degrees. Daytime temperatures, though, are getting quite warm, reaching 34 to 39 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the southwest, only a slight chance of rain really anywhere else. But there could be a bit of a thunderstorm around there, so keep an eye out for that as well. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 15 to 19 degrees, but in the lower western during the day, it's going to reach around 29 to 35 degrees. So pretty warm there in the far west of New South Wales. I've got more to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, Australian honey producers have had a win in overseas courts. I'll tell you what it could mean for the future of the Manuka honey industry. And obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. If you're a fan of Australian or New Zealand Manuka honey, uh, supposedly it's pretty similar. You can text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Let me and let me know what you use it for. We actually put it on a, a wound on a horse the other day. The vet recommended doing that. Uh, also, have you been seeing more rabbits than usual around at the moment? There have been lots of rabbit sightings in the Adelaide Hills, and as a result, there's a control campaign underway there as well. I'll have more. More on that soon and I would be interested to know if you have seen an uptick in rabbit numbers. Obviously there was that wet spring and a lot of growth and therefore a lot of food there to support rabbits. So let me know if you've been seeing them and if you're keen to be involved with this campaign that the Landscape Board in the Adelaide Hills and Florio Peninsula is running. You can text me 0467922891 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. First though, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the National Medical Regulator has approved a new multi-strain COVID-19 vaccine for use among Australians aged 12 and over. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine is designed to target the Omicron and original COVID-19 variants. It's already recommended for use as a booster or a fourth dose for people aged over 50 and for vulnerable Australians 18 and over. 
The state's Tourism Commission estimates that 780,000 people attended this year's Tour Down Under. The 10-day event returned to Adelaide after a two-year COVID-19 hiatus. And a new report says that South Australia had the fastest annual growth of home prices in the country, despite a record number of new homes being built. The latest Comsec State of the States report says that SA's home prices are up 11% compared to a national decline of 5.3%. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, you might have read that Kangaroo Island has just landed a spot on the New York Times top 10 travel destinations for 2023. Kangaroo Island Mayor Michael Pengilly predicts they're going to see an influx of international tourists there, but he believes there really needs to be an improvement made to the island's ferry service in order to facilitate that. Council recently met with ferry operator Sealink to express those concerns, a follow-up discussion from their first roundtable meeting about two months ago. Uh, look, it was productive meeting last Friday. We had uh, reps there again from across the island from the different organisations. We had Sealink. Uh, they gave us an update on where the new vessels are. They seem to have come away since the last meeting. She then uh, gave us an update on their problems getting crews to the ships. That's an Australia-wide problem. Generally speaking, it was a positive tone. Assurances were put in place that, uh, you know, they're not expecting anything major to go wrong. They're replacing the steering on the Spirit of Kangaroo Island. Soon that'll be off the run for 24 hours or a little bit more, maybe. So, you know, I was quite pleased with it to the extent that I said at the end that I'll hold another meeting in March. There doesn't seem to be any necessity at this stage to have one before then, and we'll be able to get further updates. So it was encouraging, I think you'd say. The building of two new boats were on the cards. Have they come into fruition? They've been started. They're being built in an island off Indonesia, is our information, side by side. They're both being built together. They're still saying that they're going to come on the run in July 2024, so I guess we have to wait, which is really only 18 months away. So they want to get cracking, and uh, you know, the, the current vessels are sort of past what they said they'd be replaced at by a certain number of years. They're still fine and still doing a great job. But Sealink uh, obviously have uh, commissioned two vessels to take their place. We want to see a start. And there needs to be changes at both ends, I might add, uh, for the berths and facilities and marshalling areas. We've got a bottleneck at Pennyshore and Cape Jervis is not much better. We need facilities upgraded there quite rapidly. So it's all got to dovetail together to have the facilities ready for the new vessels um, and make sure that Sealink deliver on their guarantee. Back in November when we chatted, two main reasons you met originally was to discuss transportation of both livestock and people during the busy season, which we're now in. How did that go? Look, I think they lifted their game substantially. They've had a couple of other hiccups, breakdowns, but that, that happens with machinery. They've picked up the ante. There has been a hiatus in livestock and freight over the busy tourist season from sort of Christmas through to about last week, really. So there hasn't been any livestock much moving. That's picked up again this week. It's absolutely critical that we get livestock off the island and get them to wherever they're going as soon as possible. So uh, we don't want any hiccups with that. Yeah, and as you just mentioned, there was a little bit of a mechanical hiccup at the end of December with one of the vessels. Did that have any impacts on the community or livestock? Oh, it was frustrating for a day or two. It always is. Uh, people have got livestock in to go away and carriers are booked and uh, more particularly the abattoirs and places like that are booked and then 
when they don't get a delivery because of a problem with the boat, they get annoyed and then they say yeah, that it affects their trade with Kangaroo Island. Very, very cognizant of that. I don't really think that the people at Sealink, with due respect, understand the vagaries of livestock movements and abattoirs and and tight timelines. Uh, I don't think really that they're in tune with that, uh, unfortunately, and I don't know that they probably would be ever. So that that is an issue. And what were some of the other issues discussed when you were in that uh, meeting with those different stakeholders? Well, it was it was principally reliability and uh, peak season uh, numbers, peak season availability. It was also uh, raised uh, quite strongly with the availability for local people to uh, get a place on the boat when they need one, uh, to get away to see family or for medical appointments or for whatever. Uh, there's just been no capacity to book over January. It's all booked out. It uh, makes it very, very difficult in the busy season for locals. They can get on walk-on and walk off, but then you've got to get to where you're going and there's only two bus services a day that Sealink run so we've asked them to have a look at how you can assure the Kangaroo Island community that they can get space on the boat particularly in the very busy season. Yesterday KI was named one of the New York Times top 10 travel destinations for 2023. With that news do you think there might be a bit of an influx of tourists? I'm sure there will be. We're looking at a recovery in the international uh, tourism market. They're starting to come in now. US is a big market for us. And New York Times got a widespread uh, distribution, of course. So we look forward to that. Uh, we have to have a discussion about the cruise ship visitation. That's creating some issues. And I'm encouraging that after the cruise ship season uh, finishes, that the island as a whole has some discussion over the uh, ifs, buts and maybes of cruise ship passengers but with the announcement that we're number seven worldwide, I actually think we should be one. But uh, with the announcement we're seven by the New York Times, that's a great promotion. Uh, you can't buy marketing like that. It was a bit of a coup, and it is a wonderful place. Uh, <laughs> I do agree with the Kangaroo Island Mayor, Michael Pengilla, who was speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris there. And just in a statement, the ferry operator Sealink says that the construction of those two new larger Sealink ferries is on schedule and uh, delivery and commencement is expected around mid-2024, so next year. They're going to be pretty big, 60 metres long, uh, 20, 20 metres wide, um, and approximately 150 metres more vehicle space, so quite big um, and that could mean they'll see an increase in the number of departures per day in both the, the peak and off-peak seasons. So a bit of movement there hopefully to accommodate all the visitors that the region will get after that uh, that coup of landing a spot on the New York Times top 10 travel destinations for 2023. Now to honey. An Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against a group of New Zealand producers who want exclusive use of the word Manuka. The New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appalachian Society withdrew from appeals it launched in the United Kingdom and Europe courts after losing trademark cases to Australia. And the Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender told Clint Jasper it means Australian producers are free to sell Manuka honey in those markets now. Well, number one, it's the uh, right decision on their behalf, and they should have done it a long time ago uh, and saved themselves a lot of money and pain. But it means to our industry that, you know, the the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked. We were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world, you know, what's the situation with New Zealand? And obviously we'll be 
now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels. Uh, so it's a very, very significant uh, outcome for us and we wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened. Can you update at all on the other matters that are happening around the world? Well, the only other one that was alive was, was with Europe. They've also um, stopped uh, pursuing the trademark name in Europe. And the only outstanding one now is uh, the IPO office in New Zealand, which we're waiting for a decision on. Um, you know, and hopefully it's been a year now, and so hopefully there'll be a decision coming out of there soon. And um, we hope it's the right decision. You know, obviously for us, it's a one-way trade with New Zealand. We can't sell any honey to New Zealand, uh, but they sell an awful lot of honey over here. So we hope it's the right decision, but it's not a significant market for us. And are you hoping what's taken place in the UK and EU, they are different jurisdictions, but you know, if the weight of your argument has carried in those uh, courts that it might uh, influence New Zealand's actions in any other future disputes it might have decided to take against Australia and other countries? Oh, they, they are independent jurisdictions, so we 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 don't know for sure if um, you know these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on uh, on what New Zealand uh, does. Uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation. Obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. Manuka's always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, Southeastern and Eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market? Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it, but you know the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about 1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or uh, prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne, or other throat lozenges, uh, throat sprays, things like that, it's very difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But um, certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. Um, and while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. When we last spoke, Paul, just before the hearing that was going to take place before the New Zealand uh, Intellectual Property Office, you were calling on more support from the federal government. I think at the time you weren't receiving much at all. Has the government come through and supported the industry more in the intervening years? Yeah, it's, it's you know, while we've had a change in government, we've uh, re-engaged with the new government and we've had ongoing support specifically for the funding from the Attorney General's office, which has been very helpful, and obviously with uh, trade and agriculture uh, on a watching brief with us as well. So um, they have been more engaged, and um, obviously this outcome is, is, is good for Australia. 
The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender speaking with Clint Jasper there about uh, some pretty significant wins Australian Manuka Honey producers have had and uh, could see more Australian Manuka sold. I'm wondering what you do with the Manuka Honey, whether you just like to eat it or whether you use it for other things. I know we used it on a horse's wound the other day, so uh, if you've got perhaps a more interesting use for it, you can text me 0467 922 891. You can also text me if you've been seeing rabbits around, particularly in the Adelaide Hills, given the spring was uh, quite wet this year. It seems there have been lots of rabbit sightings, which is why Landscape Hills and Flurio wants landholders to hop to rabbit control in the next month or so. There's going to be a series of rabbit management days to get on top of the escalating rabbit numbers. Team leader for Pests and Land, Susan Ivory, can explain a little more, though. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you going? I'm well, thank you. Why exactly are rabbit numbers so strong at the moment? Yeah, there's been some fantastic conditions. There's been good rain in the spring, mild conditions in the lead up to summer, and we're only just starting to get that heat now. Rabbits will breed when there's uh, food available, and they'll breed from age of four months, and they'll cont- they can have four or five litters a year. So if there's sufficient feed around, they'll just keep breeding like rabbits. So, uh, yeah, so that's why we have high numbers because we've had pretty good conditions for the last three or four years. So the Adelaide Hills and Florio Peninsula Landscape Board is doing some rabbit management days. What's the purpose of these days? So there's a couple of things. We want people to be uh, controlling their rabbits all at the same time. So we're really looking for that landscape scale effect when everyone is baiting for rabbits at the same time. So we've got a series of days happening in February and then we're following up with another series of days in March. And in that first round, people can buy pre-purchased pindone-treated carrots. And that should have a pretty... If you do, if people do the process correctly, uh, they should have a pretty good knockdown. But then we're having the follow-up days in March so that people can just mop up the last of those rabbits with either pindone-treated carrots or with K5 Khaleesi virus. Are there any special controls or training that people need to do? Because uh, Khaleesi virus, we've heard it for, for many years, but this, uh, this K5 virus in particular ha- has been um, developed uh, for these specific area knockdowns at certain times. Yeah, so you don't need any special training, but we do encourage people to use the K5 the same as they would for, would for Pindone to do the three free feeds of untreated carrots a couple of days apart. And that basically trains your rabbits to eat carrot because carrot's not really their normal food. But at that time of the year, it's one of the juiciest things around to eat. And then from there, you can you can release, put it lay out to your K5 treated carrots and, yeah, and then the rabbits will just consume that and take on board the virus as well. So you don't need any special training for it, but you should really follow the recommended practice. And why are you doing it at this time of year? A lot of rabbit control often happens normally in springtime. Yeah, well, so we reviewed the last couple of years of our program just to check that we were doing actual best practice. We reached out to a couple of experts in the Centre for Invasive Species Solution and the advice we got back is that we should actually shift our program from spring when we're finding there are lots of rabbits to later in summer when there's not a lot of 
uh, green pick around for that rabbits prefer. So that you can, if you feed them carrots, they're juicy. They've got water in them. Uh, the rabbits are attracted to them, but you do need to train them on it. And then the other thing is, is actually, if there's been any heat waves in the intervening period, there are less rabbits around because some of them would have been knocked out by the heat. So that also means that you know you're actually targeting fewer rabbits with what is effectively a poison or with with a virus. And what about some of the conventional wisdom around uh, ripping warrens and things like that? Will that be included in these rabbit management days as well? We will provide advice on those things and we definitely recommend that people do that. People should be doing the whole gamut using all the tools available to them. They should be warren ripping, they should be removing any uh, places where rabbits will shelter, and especially in the Adelaide Hills, rabbits don't always need to use warrens because there's a lot of shelter around. But if there are piles of green waste or piles of pallets or piles of wood or things like that, rabbits will love to live inside that, even under shrubs and trees. You know, we often recommend to people, say, if nothing else, maybe just trim up your tr- shrubs a bit to, to to take away that shelter so that rabbits can't shelter under there. And also the same with fumigation. It's a great method. If you want to fumigate, if you do find warrens, definitely get, get a pest controller in to fumigate those and then destroy all those warrens. Are the baits actually free, the, the, the carrot baits with the, the pindone and the clesivirus? Well, yes and no. So our fire recovery team, they're running a special program for those that were impacted by the Cuddly Creek fires. So they are offering uh, pindone-treated carrots and later later in the year, virus-treated carrots for free. But for the rest of the region, we're offering them heavily discounted. They're below half price, what we normally sell these products. So, yeah, that's the other incentive for people. Not only are you... Uh, baiting at the same time as your neighbours, but it's also a lot cheaper. Who can actually access these baits? Do you need to have a a certain size land or something like that? Yeah, so that's a really important point. Um, Landholders that have got property uh, that that is 1,000 square metres or greater can access Pindone. If you have smaller properties, then your only option is really the virus. And I guess just as a disclaimer for the virus, if you're planning to use a virus, please speak to your neighbours. If they have pet rabbits, they need to make sure that those rabbits are vaccinated. Have you had much interest from people to get on top of the rabbit numbers? Yeah, between all the programs that we've got going, uh, since we started advertising about a week ago, we're, uh, I've got about 120 people so far registered. Yeah, and we're expecting that to increase as the word gets out. Well, good luck. I hope you're able to get on top of the pest. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Landscape Hills and Florio team leader for pests and land, Susan Ivory there. And do make sure you get your pets vaccinated. It'd be terrible to see a family pet affected by this. Uh, and you can vaccinate against that K5 Khaleesi virus. A uh, text in from Joey says Bugs Bunny was always munching on carrots. Uh, oh, well, I mean, hopefully they take up the bait as well, the ones that are not wanted and uh, act like Bugs Bunny. Thanks for that text, Joe. You can keep texting me 0467 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It's nine minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. 
seas now because while the official Southern Rock lobster season is only halfway through, some boats in the southeast have already reached their quota, but others are holding off in hopes of a better payday. It's certainly been a topsy-turvy couple of years for the rock lobster fishermen and women. Port Port McDonnell lobster fisher Gordon Lewis says his boats have enough of their season's quota left to make it worthwhile holding off fishing for a few weeks in case prices improve. The boys have had quite a bit of time off, hoping to get a better price, but uh, it's sort of not happening much at the moment. It's still stop and start, stop and start, but I think um, with what's happening overseas, it is starting to look a bit better. I don't know if we'll see the results this year or we'll run out of quota first. So, But if it comes better this year and it's better for next year, then it's all good. Still, still a few months left in the season yet, and the catches have been good, which is been excellent for the fishing. It keeps the cost down. You're sort of catching two lots of uh, craze in one day, so it keeps the expenses down. But, um, yeah, they're hanging off, just trying to get the price up again. It come down to $40 again for the small ones, which most of the fish out of Port McDonald are small. And what price will prompt you to go out again? What are you hoping to see? Oh, well, at this stage, we're averaging around $55, so we, we don't want to try and bring our average under that if we can help it. So how much of your quota have you got left for the season? Uh, boys probably got about a third each, so probably got a bit over three tonne each to go. Are most people in town similar to you, waiting it out, do you think, or are some of them just finishing up and getting out of there? Yeah, there's a few few finished up. As you get less and less quota, then it's not worth hanging off because it's not going to make a lot of difference to the price. But if you've still got a few tonne to go, then it can make a bit of difference. You get up 5 or $6, it makes a lot of difference. Yeah, there's quite a few finishing and there'd be quite a few getting close to finish, I think. When are you hoping to finish? Obviously, you want the price to go up, but is there a time you're aiming for? Ah, uh, well, no, the season goes to the end of um, May. If you have to fish it, you can, but... You don't want to. We have before, but um, we don't want to. The sooner you can get out, the better. But, yeah, we'll just see what happens. The trade negotiations with China you're paying close attention to? Ah, yeah. If we're not, the buyers are, and everyone else seems to be paying close attention. Just hoping, hoping for the best. We need to be back in there. You'd expect there to be a pretty quick price increase if China did come back on board with lobsters? I think it would be a significant jump if we didn't have to go through the back doors and we could go through the front doors, then it would be quite good. It would would help it for sure. But, yeah, there's sort of no one that can take them like China can take them with the people and all that and the dollars. And the domestic market here doesn't do much. They get one feed a year and think they've done well. Paul McDonald, lobster fisher Gordon Lewis speaking there. Lee Gilbert's texted in uh, regarding the Manuka honey and uh, really interesting information. Thanks for your text, Lee. It says uh, Manuka in the 60s and 70s was a lot cheaper than other floral sources of honey and the racehorse people used to mix it into their chaff as a stomach cleanser and it was used for saddle sores. Some beekeepers couldn't sell it and they tipped it down rabbit burrows and avoided working it because it blocks up your honey sieves, according to Lee. Thanks for that. That's really 
really interesting. I didn't know that about it. And yeah, we put our uh, put some manuka honey on uh, a horse that has uh, injured its leg. The vet recommended it. So sounds like it's still a, a um, recommendation there. Thanks for your text. You can keep your text coming zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Finally today, it's been a huge twenty four hours for two shearers on the York Peninsula. Sean Barnett and Dylan Hancock have shown more than one thousand six hundred sheep in an effort to fundraise money for both the McGrath and Prostate Cancer Foundations. Event organiser Laura Hancock says the support by those who came down was incredible. Yeah, it went fantastic. Better than we originally thought. It was quite big, which was fantastic. I heard when you had roughly about three and a half hours to go, you'd already shown about 1,400 sheep. What was the total in the end? Um, so it was 1,677 total. And what did you expect to sort of hit? What were your targets for the day? Originally, we kind of had hoped maybe between five to 10,000 for each charity, but we had well and truly hit that before the event even started. So, yeah, it was massive. And half will go to the McGrath Foundation and half to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. And why those two foundations? Is there a particular connection to those? Yeah, so both foundations were close to the family, which is how they came about. But in saying that, a lot of the cancers hit a lot of people close to their hearts. So we were just picking and trying to help as much as we can, really. And in the end, how much was raised? So currently we're sitting over 50000 which is incredible. So much more than we had ever imagined. Um, and we've still got a few donations coming in, which is fantastic. And if people do want to still donate, how can they go about doing that? Um, so we have a, a Facebook event called the 24-Hour Share for Cancer, um, but on there has the BSBN account number if you'd like to make a donation into that. Laura Hancock, 24-Hour Share for Cancer event organiser. And I caught up with one of the two shearers, Sean Barnett, to see how he felt the event went and to hear how he was holding up. Yeah, I think we exceeded our expectations. We did a lot better than we thought we were going to. So, yeah, we're both really happy. I know definitely for myself, I was sharing sort of like my highest tallies I'd ever done and we just sort of continued to do that. And those type of sheep, you know, like being a merino that usually a little bit harder, a little bit slower. When you shear crossbreds, you usually shear a bit faster, but being merinos, yeah, we usually shear a bit slower and, yeah, we were sort of shearing at our highest tallies and, yeah, kept that up all night long, which was pretty happy with. And dare I ask, how are you feeling this morning? Exhausted. Yeah. I'm glad it's over and now, yeah, a bit of pain. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask, are you sore? The body must feel like it's run a marathon. Yeah, no, it does. Every part of me and parts I've never been sore before feel sore today. Um, I'm a lot sore today than I was yesterday. I think yesterday was still on a bit of a high after it all happening. And then, yeah, today it's hit reality and, yes, the body's feeling it. Obviously, 24 hours is a really long period to shear. How many breaks did you have over that time? I think it ended up being eight breaks, nine runs. Because we do, you work and run, so we do two hours and then you have a break for half an hour, two hours, have a break for an hour, two hours, and you just keep doing that for over a 24-hour period. It attracted quite a crowd and people came down to actually watch uh, yourself and Dylan Shear. Was that really motivating and encouraging, having people down there supporting you? Yeah, definitely towards the end. We tried not to look back at the crowd because you're, you know, just trying to concentrate. But yeah, definitely those last couple of hours, that's what lifted us because before we started, we were pretty exhausted and we're wondering how we were going to get through. And then you, when yeah, you really see the crowd sort of rolling in, you just lifted off their vibes and just kept going. 
I'm sure you didn't want to give up, but were there moments there you thought this is this is really hard? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the back, the back was um, feeling a lot of pain towards the end there, and we had a really good team in our pens with us. And every time we just walked in, they were just, yeah, come on, mate, just keep pushing, just keep going, just keep going. You've got this, and yeah, it just helped us get through. We couldn't have done it without the team in there. And I heard you. Shira Sean Barnett ending that report by Demetria Panagiotaris. Uh, this is a massive effort. I bet they're feeling it today. And if you're keen, you can donate to the cause. You can head to Facebook and search for the 24-hour Shear for Cancer where you can find more details. That's about all we have time for in the program, though, today. For more rural news, you can go online to abc.net.au slash rural. Otherwise, there's more coming up this afternoon with Sonia Feldhoff. We're approaching 1 o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.